Okay, everybody here? Okay. Uh, can you hear us? Yes. Okay, uh, good evening. Um, my name's Eduardo Cadava, and I'm presently the chair of the Edward uh, W. Said Class of 57 Memorial Lecture Committee. And on behalf of the committee, uh, the Department of English, and the student-run Princeton Committee on Palestine, I would like to welcome you to the seventh annual lecture in our series. Uh, this year, we are honored and pleased that Professor Noam Chomsky has kindly agreed to be with us tonight. Uh, before introducing him, I'd like to offer a few thanks and to say a few words about the lecture series. Um, first of all, I'd like to thank the members of the lecture committee, and especially Zia Mian for the role uh, he played in Professor Chomsky's kind acceptance of our invitation, uh, and the students on the Princeton Committee on Palestine, especially Yoel Bitran, the current president of the PCP, and Sarah Musa for everything they've done to make this event possible. Thank you. Uh, although this is the seventh lecture in our series, this is only the second year that the lecture has been supported by endowed funds. And so I also wish to thank Samar Yunis, Nabil Kadumi, and Carl Chastanet for their very generous and kind support. We're especially pleased that Mr. Chastanet is uh, able to be with, here with us tonight, and I think he's, he's right here, yes. So thank you. Um, we owe him and our other donors a felt debt uh, for facilitating this year's lecture and for helping secure the series' future. I'd also like to acknowledge um, Miriam Saeed's presence here tonight. She's right here. Um, and to thank her for our ongoing support. Uh, the lecture series was begun in 2003 uh, by the student-run Princeton Committee in, on Palestine in order to honor and give tribute to Edward Said's work and life, both of which have been and still are so present for so many of us. As we know, memorials of any kind are as much about the future as they are about the past, and it is in this context that the example of Edward remains still today such a model and inspiration, not only for those of us in literature and the humanities, but also for those of us who remain committed to a future that will not simply be the repetition of the past. Taking his point of departure from Adorno, Edward once wrote that the main hope of the intellectual is not that he will have an effect on the world, but that someday, somewhere, someone will recall what he wrote exactly as he wrote it. In an interview, he explains that he borrowed this idea from Adorno at a time when he felt that things were going very badly for the Palestinians and that being left out of the progress of history was a fate he didn't wish to settle for. What I felt that I could at least do was to testify, he says, to be a witness to a certain kind of history and to get it right. I think in the end that is probably the most fundamental challenge of all, to try to get it right, to find words that will fit a situation and that will not change as the situation changes, but which will at least register a reaction to a particular moment that would otherwise go by. End quote. The passion that motivated what Edward wrote about Palestine and its people emerged from his sense of the distance between Palestinian reality and the distortions of that reality that have been and continue to be so present in Western public discourse. This is what encouraged him to try again and again to get it right, 
This is also, I think, what often has motivated the courage, determination, and commitment of Noam Chomsky's long-standing interest in describing the daily effects of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict on the Palestinian people, but also the suffering of the poor and the vulnerable across the globe, those who have experienced what Walter Benjamin famously called the tradition of the oppressed. The Institute Professor and Professor of Linguistics Emeritus in the Department of Linguistics and Philosophy at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, Professor Chomsky has written books that have ranged from his groundbreaking research into the nature of human language and communication to his fierce analysis and criticism of international affairs and American foreign policy from the Vietnam War to the present wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Since 1957, when he published Syntactic Structures, he has written over 90 books, including American Power and the New Mandarins, The Fateful Triangle, Pirates and Emperors, Manufacturing Consent, Middle East Illusions, Failed States, and most recently, Hopes and Prospects. There is no living American intellectual who has read more widely than him. Exposing the violent history of American imperialism, his writings have put before us the violence, the inequality, the economic and colonialist exclusions that affected and continue to affect so many human beings in the history of not only America, but of the earth. He reminds us that instead of celebrating the ideals of liberal democracy and of the capitalist market in an affirmation of America's expansionist desires, we should attend to the innumerable instances of suffering and death that often are attributable to this market and to these desires. What Professor Chomsky shares with Edward Said, beyond the events at which they both spoke together and the book on which they collaborated in 1999, Acts of Aggression, Policing Rogue States, is a commitment to scrupulous scholarship, a passion for justice, and the courage to say what others often do not dare to say. Seeking to delineate the consequences of America's imperial tendencies, and not only hers, what his writings tell us is that the earth is not a place where humanity or rights are shared. It is instead a place of inequality and injustice, a place of loss and death, a place where every day there are more people who are abandoned and abused, who are displaced and dispossessed, who are marginalized and exiled, and who live without the full exercise of political and civic, civic rights. It is a place where the task of defining and realizing human rights is infinite and therefore permanently urgent and necessary. This is why, if a different world can be ever be inaugurated, if there can ever be a future that will not simply be a repetition of the past, it may well be enabled by work like that of Noam Chomsky. And it is for this reason, among so many others, that we remain indebted to him and to everything that he is. The title of his lecture this evening is, I'm Kinda, Reflections on the Culture of Imperialism. Please help me welcome Professor Noam Chomsky to Princeton. Test the mic first. Can you hear me? Yeah? Okay. Um, this is uh, the third time that I've had the privilege of uh, giving uh, a lecture in memory of Edward Said. Uh, he was an old and close and valued friend, 
one of the most uh, remarkable and influential uh, intellectuals of the past half century. Uh, much of his immense effort and talent was uh, devoted to overcoming the insularity, uh, prejudice, self-righteousness, uh, apologetics uh, that are among the pathologies of power and defending the rights of the victims. Uh, in these three talks, I've tried to pick up some of Edward's themes. Uh, the first of the three was in Beirut in 2006. That was shortly before the uh, U.S.-Israeli invasion that once again tore much of the country to shreds. Uh, that was the fifth invasion in 30 years. The 2006 invasion uh, devastated places that uh, my wife and I had just visited that added special pain to the scenes of destruction where we had places where we'd been graciously welcomed during a rare moment of uh, hope and peace and, of course, to the deaths of people we had met. Well, perhaps I should comment on the phrase U.S.-Israeli invasion, which is not the usual one, but it's the accurate one. Uh, and it generalizes very broadly to Israeli crimes since the U.S.-Israeli alliance was uh, formed in its uh, present, established in its present form in 1967. Uh, Israel can go as far as the United States permits and no farther. Uh, throughout, the United States has been a direct participant, uh, even in crimes that it formally condemns, uh, but with a wink. Uh, we see that regularly today. Uh, so take uh, when, when Barack Obama repeats the uh, standard official phrases about settlement expansion uh, while informing the press uh, that uh, his statements are purely symbolic the word that was used, and that he will not administer even the light tap on the wrist that uh, uh, for the first Bush did when he was annoyed by Israel's brazen defiance of the call for termination of these illegal actions. Let me stress, he was, uh, Bush was annoyed by the manner, not the fact of the uh, defiance, and Israel recognized that and did it in a different way. Uh, for what it's worth, over 40 years ago, uh, it was clearly recognized by uh, Israel's highest legal authorities, that includes distinguished jurists of international renown, uh, that the settlement programs uh, violate core principles of international law. It's, been, it's also recognized throughout the world outside the United States and affirmed by the International Court of Justice. But not really relevant uh, when the world is dominated by a self-declared rogue state. Uh, on the uh, 2006 invasion, uh, President Obama's uh, stance was quite explicit at the time. Uh, during his presidential campaign two years later, uh, he highlighted his sponsorship of a 2006 Senate resolution insisting that the merciless attack on Lebanon must continue and that calls for ceasefire must be rejected until Israel is safe from the threat of Hezbollah missiles. Now, there had been no Hezbollah missiles 
uh, none since Israel evacuated southern Lebanon six years earlier, but they were indeed launched in response to the invasion and the murderous bombing of uh, Lebanese civilian society. Uh, Obama accepted without qualification uh, Israel's justification uh, for the invasion, uh, namely that it was a justified response to the capture of Israeli soldiers on the border. Uh, that's a pretext that would be a little hard to take seriously under any circumstances, uh, but in particular, in this case, in the light of Israel's regular practice for 30 years of kidnapping and killing uh, civilians in Lebanon and on the high seas, uh, it's piracy way beyond what anybody accuses Somalia of, uh, uh, often uh, jailing them for uh, long, for decades, uh, sometimes holding them as hostages, sometimes in secret prisons, uh, all known but irrelevant, like the legal issues. Uh, in glaring contrast, uh, Obama did not pronounce one word uh, about uh, the right to self-defense of Lebanese, uh, Palestinians, or other targets of U.S.-Israeli uh, violence. Uh, understandably, one might say, there is no such concept as justified self-defense against our aggression, uh, subversion, or terror. That's a core principle of the culture of imperialism, and of course it wasn't invented here. Uh, after a talk in downtown Beirut in May 2006, uh, members of the audience uh, gathered as usual just for informal discussion. And one young woman came from the group and approached me and said quietly, I am Kinda. It was a startling, shocking moment, which gained further poignancy two months later as U.S. planes with Israeli pilots drenched the country once again with bombs. It was a moment that resonates since. It's hard for me to forget. Uh, powerfully again last November 30th for reasons that I'll explain directly. Well, Kinda knew that I needed no words beyond I am Kinda. She had seen a book of mine that was mentioned before, written 20 years earlier, called Pirates and Emperors. Uh, the theme of the book was from a story by St. Augustine about a pirate who's captured by Alexander the Great. Uh, Alexander the Great asked the pirate, how dare he molest the sea? Uh, how dare you molest the whole world, the pirate replied. Because I do it with a little ship only, I'm called a thief. You do it with a great navy, so you're called an emperor. Uh, the answer was elegant and excellent, St. Augustine relates, and it's very pertinent to our times as well, to the so-called war on terror, for one example. The book discusses, uh, among other things, Reagan's bombing of Libya in 1986, and it includes a letter which reads as follows. Uh, Dear Mr. Reagan, why did you kill my only sister, Rafa, and my friend, Racha? She's only nine, and my baby doll, Strawberry. It's true. Is it true that you want to kill us all because my father is Palestinian, and you want to kill Gaddafi because he wants us to help us go back to my father's home and land? And my name is Kinda. That's the letter. Uh, Kinda's family 
and her letter were found in the ruins of their home uh, by uh, ABC Middle East correspondent Charles Glass, an old personal friend. Uh, he broke radically from discipline and he investigated the effects of Reagan's bombing of civilian targets in Libya. Uh, Glass submitted the letter to the US press, but it wasn't considered fit to print, uh, nor broadcast by his own network, uh, nor was his interview with Kinda's parents considered uh, fit for broadcast or publication. He sent me a copy too, handwritten copy, and I included it in the book where Kinda had seen it. So when she came up to me and said quietly, I am Kinda, I knew who she was, thankfully alive, 20 years later, a student in Beirut. Now it's not that the media are unconcerned by the killing of little girls, quite the contrary. Uh, in one of the New York Times editorials praising the emperor's brave terrorist attack on defenseless Libya, the headline reads, to save the next Natasha Simpson. Uh, the editors were referring to uh, someone well-known, an 11-year-old American girl who was one of the victims of the terrorist attacks in Rome uh, and Vienna air terminals on December 27, 1985. Now, unlike Rafa, Racha, and Kinda, Natasha was very well-known. Uh, her terrible fate entitles us to bomb Libyan cities to discourage state-supported terrorism, the Times editors solemnly declared. It's only a minor defect that no evidence had ever been presented or has to this day uh, to implicate Libya in the Rome or Vienna crimes, uh, nor is it of any relevance that the charge was vigorously rejected by the Italian and uh, Austrian governments. Uh, Libya had been selected as a punching bag by the Reagan administration from the moment it took office uh, when it declared uh, a war against uh, what he called state-directed international terrorism, uh, the plague of the modern age, uh, a return to barbarism in our times, to sample some of the emperor's rhetoric uh, back in the early 80s. Uh, no matter how ludicrous, uh, tales of Libya's threat to our existence were taken quite seriously. For example, some of you re may remember the fevered tales, the fevered reports of Libyan hitmen uh, roaming the streets of Washington to assassinate our leader. The White House was surrounded with tanks to protect him. Uh, whatever fable was invented by state propaganda sufficed to, to justify violence against Libya, no questions asked. And Libya was a perfect target. Uh, it was weak, it was defenseless, its leader was reviled, had no sympathy or support, so a perfect country to bomb and attack people, kill them, and so on. Uh, these uh, US terrorist crimes have been dispatched to the usual repository for unwanted facts, but it might be uh, useful to extricate a few items from Orwell's memory hole, which is pretty full. We help fill it. Uh, on April 14th, 1986, at about 6.30 p.m., I received a phone call from Charles Glass uh, from Libya. He was in Tripoli. He advised me to watch the 7 p.m. Uh, news programs. He knows I never watch television. 
Uh, and I did so. Uh, in, in 1986, all the channels, TV channels, had their prime news hour at 7 p.m. So he told me I should watch, and I did. And exactly at 7 p.m. to the second, uh, agitated news anchors uh, switched to their facilities in Libya so they could present live uh, the bombing of Tripoli and Benghazi. It's the first bombing in history, and the only one, in fact, that was enacted for primetime TV. It was no slight logistical accomplishment uh, because uh, uh, the bombers were denied the right to cross over France, and so they had to take a long detour, detour through the Atlantic and had to make sure to arrive just on time uh, for the uh, uh, television uh, news program, uh, the evening news, and they did. And uh, after showing the exciting scenes of the cities in flames, the TV channels switched to Washington for sober discussion of uh, how the U.S. was defending itself from Libyan terror under the newly devised doctrine of self-defense against future attack. Uh, officials informed the country that they had certain knowledge that Libya had carried out a bombing of a disco in uh, Berlin a few days earlier in which a U.S. GI had been killed. The certainty reduced to zero shortly after, as was quietly conceded uh, well after its purpose had been achieved. And it would have been hard to find even a raised eyebrow about the idea that the disco bombing would have justified the murderous assault on Libyan civilians, even if there were some evidence for it. Uh, the media were also polite enough not to notice the curious timing. I haven't, didn't see a word about it then or since, or for that matter, the fact that they had their bureaus in Tripoli just waiting. You know, what are they doing there? Uh, in fact, Charlie Glass, same guy who was the ABC correspondent, told me, this is North Africa, but he told me that at that time, ABC had three bureaus in Asia, one in Tokyo, one in Tel Aviv, and one in Jerusalem. But no, there was nothing in Tripoli. <laughs> uh, the uh, uh, commentators were also uh, you know, entranced by the solidity of the non-existent evidence and also of Washington's dedication to law. Uh, here's a typical reaction from the New York Times editors. Explained that even the most scrupulous citizen can only approve and applaud the American attacks on Libya. The United States has prosecuted Gaddafi carefully, proportionately, and justly. The evidence for Libyan responsibility for the disco bombing has been now laid out clearly to the public. And then came the jury the European governments to which the United States went out of its way to send emissaries to share evidence and urge concerted action against the Libyan leader. Uh, entirely irrelevant, as usual, is the fact that no evidence was ever laid out and that the jury uh, was anything but enthusiastic, very skeptical, particularly in Germany itself, where there had been an intensive investigation, of course, and they found no evidence at all of any Libyan involvement, which was quite public. Uh, and it was also irrelevant that the jury was uh, pleading with the executioner to refrain from any action. 
uh, but these are more irrelevancies. Uh, at the left liberal end of the spectrum, which is always the most interesting part, the New York Times legal correspondent, Anthony Lewis, was particularly fulsome in his praise of Reagan for his, quoting, reliance on a legal argument that violence against the perpetrators of repeated violence is justified as an act of self-defense. Now, recall that the justification was quite different. Uh, it was the legal innovation of self-defense against future attack. The Lewis did have a point, however, uh, in referring to repeated violence uh, that justified U.S. bombing and self-defense. Uh, Amnesty International had just come out with a report which charged that Libya was indeed a terrorist state, uh, having killed 14 of its own citizens during the years when the uh, emperor's terrorist forces had killed about 100,000 in Central America alone, uh, numbers that were soon to double. That was in the course of what uh, Bishop Artura Idamas called a war of extermination and genocide against a defenseless civilian population. Uh, the bishop was referring to El Salvador in the early days of Reaganite terror. The bishop had become the spokesman for the church after the assassination of Archbishop Romero by Reagan's friends and associates. Uh, all of this uh, small fraction of uh, Reaganite terror carried out under the cover of the war on terror uh, to which the bombing of Libya added a small footnote, only several dozen people killed, apparently, uh, including uh, Rafa and Raja. Uh, in other parts of Africa, according to a UN estimate, uh, 1.5 million were killed in those years uh, by South African uh, terror in the neighboring states that was strongly supported by the Reagan administration it's only in violation of congressional sanctions. But the support was justified, and officially, in fact, since it was necessary to protect the apartheid state uh, from uh, uh, Nelson Mandela's African National Congress, which was one of the world's more notorious terrorist groups, so Washington determined in 1988. In fairness, it should be added that last year, Congress voted to remove the ANC from the list of terrorist organizations. Uh, so Mandela can now uh, come to the United States <clears throat> without obtaining a waiver from Washington. <coughs> the bombing of Libya was neatly timed for a congressional vote on aid to the Contras. It's the U.S.-run terrorist force that was attacking Nicaragua from its Honduran bases. Uh, to ensure that the timing would not be missed, uh, Reagan made the connection explicit. He gave an address the day after the bombing, and he said, I would remind the House, the House of Representatives, voting this week, that this arch-terrorist Gaddafi has sent $400 million and an arsenal of weapons and advisors into Nicaragua to bring his war home to the United States. He has bragged that he's helping the Nicaraguans because they fight America on its own ground, namely America's own ground in Nicaragua. Uh, uh, the idea that the mad dog was bringing his war home to us 
uh, by providing arms to a country that we were attacking with a CIA-run terrorist army based in our Honduran dependency. That was a nice touch, and it didn't go unnoticed. Uh, the national press explained that the bombing of Libya should strengthen President Reagan's hand in dealing with Congress on issues like the military budget and aid to the Nicaraguan Contras. Now, at that time, the uh, Palmarola Air Base in Honduras was called the unsinkable aircraft carrier for Reagan's terrorist war against Nicaragua. And the U.S. still retains access to it, along with uh, seven new military bases in Colombia. That's the one country in South America that still grants the United States such rights, kicked out of all the others. Uh, a few months ago, as you'll recall, uh, Obama broke with the Latin American countries and most of Europe by recognizing the elections conducted in Nicaragua, in Honduras, by the military regime that overthrew the elected government and uh, sent the president into exile. Now, having freed itself from the yoke of democracy, uh, Honduras quickly entered into a security pact with Colombia. Uh, meanwhile, Obama's representative at the Organization of American States uh, lectured uh, silly Latin Americans to abandon their infatuation with what he called magic realism and join the godfather in his sober calculations. Uh, it's hard to suppress the thought that Obama's support for the violent overthrow of Honduran democracy might be related to the utility of the unsinkable aircraft carrier for the ongoing project of militarization of Latin America, which Obama is carrying out following Bush's programs, as usual, uh, in reaction to the dangerous drift of uh, Latin America towards independence. It's a very significant story that I put aside here. Well, there's a lot to say about the efforts that Reagan and company had taken to try to elicit some Libyan action to justify the planned April 1986 bombing. It included naval operations in Libya's Gulf of Sidra a couple of weeks earlier, killing dozens of Libyans, sinking many ships, also flights by the U.S. Air Force over Libyan territory, and the obvious effort to uh, elicit some anti-aircraft fire that would provide uh, certain knowledge of Libyan infamy. Uh, but uh, let's put aside this shameful record of provocation, uh, lies, and gratifying slaughter of Libyans, despite its evident relevance to the uh, war on terror that was redeclared, not declared, redeclared by Bush 20 years later and being carried out by Obama. And let's return instead to Kinda and her murdered sister and friend. Uh, it's fair, I think, to regard these little girls as symbols of many years of horrific crimes and uh, intentional ignorance, phrase of human right and rights investigator Michael Glennon. is uh, referring to the non-reaction to Reagan's terrorist atrocities in Central America. The thought that the children should be regarded in that manner came to my mind vividly last November 30th when I listened to an eloquent address by Father Jan Sabrino 
he's the one survivor of the assassination 20 years earlier of six leading Latin American intellectuals, Jesuit priests, by a US-run elite uh, Salvadoran force, uh, fresh from renewed training by US special forces, having already left a bloody trail of thousands of the usual victims. Uh, Father Sabrino reminded the audience at Boston's Jesuit University that the killers had also murdered two women, uh, Julia Elba and her daughter Celine, Selena. Uh, they've been forgotten even more completely than uh, the uh, murdered Jesuits. Uh, uh, the reason for their murder was straightforward. Uh, the orders given to Washington's elite battalion specified that no witnesses should survive. So Julia Elba and Selena were what's called collateral damage. Uh, a few days before the 20th anniversary commemoration uh, on November 30th, at which Father Sabrino spoke, the Spanish press published a copy of the document uh, of, uh, that had ordered the assassination, signed by the chief of staff and his associates, all of them so closely connected to the Pentagon and the U.S. Embassy, that it becomes even harder to imagine uh, that uh, Washington was unaware of the plans of its model battalion. Now, these revealing discoveries, as far as I can determine, have passed unreported elsewhere in the West. In his talk, Father Sabrino described Julia Elba and Selena as the symbols of the suffering masses of El Salvador and the world much like Kinda, Rafa, and Raja, and also symbols of the convenient intentional ignorance of the perpetrators who are deeply immersed in the culture of imperialism and obedient to its dictates. In the month, the month of November, last November, as I'm sure you'll recall, it was devoted to the celebration of the 20th anniversary of the liberation of Eastern Europe from Russian tyranny, a victory of the forces of love, tolerance, nonviolence, the human spirit, and forgiveness as one of the heroes of this moment, these momentous events, uh, Václav Havel uh, declared to much awe and acclaim. Uh, less attention, in fact, zero, was devoted to the brutal assassination of his Salvadoran counterparts a few days after the Berlin Wall fell. Uh, the murder of the Jesuits, Jesuit intellectuals, closed the decade of horrors in, Central, in El Salvador that had opened with the uh, assassination of the archbishop by much the same hands, and the even worse atrocities elsewhere in Central America, all tracing back primarily to Washington, part of the war on terror. Uh, but the historical significance of the forgotten November 1989 assassinations goes far beyond Reagan's terrorist wars of the 1980s. The murders delivered a virtual death blow to liberation theology. That was the heretical doctrine that was inspired by Pope John XXIII in 1962 when he called Vatican II and sought to revive the Gospels for the first time since the fourth century, when the Emperor Constantine 
adopted Christianity as the Church of the Roman Empire, converting the persecuted church to a persecuting church, in the words of the eminent theologian and historian of Christianity, Hans Kuhn. Uh, in the post-Vatican II attempt to revive the Christianity of uh, the pre-Roman period, pre-imperial period, uh, priests, uh, nuns, and laypersons uh, took the message of the Gospels, which was, of course, radical pacifist. Uh, that's why Christians were persecuted. Uh, took the Gospels to poor and persecuted people, encouraged peasants to take their fate into their own hands and to work together to try to overcome the misery of survival in the harsh realms of U.S. power. Uh, the preferential option for the poor, as it was called, drawn directly from the Gospels uh, and adopted by the Latin American church, it was recognized by the emperor very quickly to be a grave and intolerable heresy. And the reaction was swift, uh, beginning with the installation of a vicious uh, terror and torture national security state in Brazil, the military coup planned by Kennedy, Kennedy administration and carried out shortly after, a couple of weeks after Kennedy's assassination. Uh, that was the first stage of a plague of repression uh, without parallel uh, since the days of the conquistadors. It spread over South America under Washington's guidance, uh, left many religious martyrs, uh, all forgotten for the usual reasons, uh, wrong agency. The near final blow to the preferential option for the poor was in November 1989. Now, the emperor is quite proud of this achievement. The School of the Americas, which has since been renamed, uh, which is famous for training Latin American killers, uh, advertises as one of its talking points, I'm quoting, that liberation theology was defeated with the assistance of the US Army. We got rid of this gospel's heresy. Well, that's uh, made a couple of remarks about the end of the Cold War in 19, November 1989. It might be useful to look at the origins of that international conflict. Uh, these are events in which uh, Princeton's own Woodrow Wilson played an illuminating role. Uh, the prominent Cold War scholar, John Lewis Gaddis, uh, quite plausibly traces the origins of the conflict to the Bolshevik takeover of Russia in 1917. And uh, he writes that uh, the immediate Allied intervention was undertaken in self-defense, uh, and for Woodrow Wilson was inspired above all else uh, by his fervent desire to secure self-determination in Russia. Uh, Gaddis adds that the 1918 Western invasion, quoting him now, was undertaken in response to a profound and potentially far-reaching intervention by the new Soviet government in the internal affairs, not just of the West, but of virtually every country in the world, uh, namely the revolution's challenge, which could hardly have been more categorical to the very survival of the capitalist order. Gaddis goes on to criticize Soviet historians, quoting still, who see the Western intervention as shocking, unnatural, and even a violation of the legal norms that should exist between nations, 
that stance is absurd, he instructs them. One cannot have it both ways. Uh, complaining about a Western invasion, while the most profound revolutionary challenge of the century was mounted against the West, namely by changing the internal so social order inside Russia and proclaiming revolutionary intentions. Uh, in short, under the, uh, these are not marginal comments. This is the leading Cold War historian quoting. Uh, in short, under the uh, intellectual guidance of the idealist US president, in 1918, the West was already exercising the right of self-defense against future attack that was invoked by the Reaganites when they bombed Libya. In 1918, it was self-defense against an ideological threat, similar to our self-defense against the heretical return to the Gospels in 1962, crushed at last uh, by the November 1989 assassination, so it's hoped. Uh, in his uh, scholarly history of Soviet-American relations, uh, George Kennan expands on Gaddis's analysis. He writes that Lenin's dissolution of the Constituent Assembly in January 1918 initiated the Cold War conflict with an element of finality. The idealistic Woodrow Wilson was particularly distraught, Kennan continues, that's a reflection of his uh, strong attachment to constitutionality, which was deeply offended by the sight of a government with no mandate beyond the bayonets of the Red Guard. That's Kennan. Uh, while he was distraught at this uh, shocking scene, clearly intolerable to the liberal conscience, uh, Wilson dispatched his Marines uh, to Haiti to dissolve the National Assembly in occupied Haiti uh, by genuinely Marine Corps methods, in the words of the Marine commander, uh, Smedley Butler. The reason was that the Haitian uh, legislature had refused to ratify a U.S. written constitution uh, that would permit U.S. corporations to buy up Haitian lands. Uh, a Marine-run plebiscite uh, remedied the problem under Washington's guns uh, the Constitution was ratified by a 99.9% majority with 5% of the population participating, namely the wealthy collaborationist elite. Uh, Wilson's strong attachment to constitutionality was unmoved uh, by the sight of a government with no mandate uh, beyond the bayonets of the Marines, uh, nor Kennan's. And perhaps that's because the new Constitution was progressive, uh, so U.S. commentators explain. Uh, plainly, Haiti needed U.S. investment, and one could hardly expect American investors to develop the country unless they owned it. Well, all of this is gone from history, <clears throat> along with uh, Wilson's restoration of virtual slavery, uh, marine massacres and terror that left thousands of corpses and many medals for the killers and numerous other crimes. Uh, Wilson also invaded the other half of Hispaniola, the Dominican Republic, at the same time. Uh, that invasion was devastating enough, but uh, far less destructive than Haiti because the inhabitants of the Dominican Republic had a preponderance of white blood and culture 
the State Department explained, uh, while the Haitians are inferior people, Negro for the most part, and almost in a state of savagery and complete ignorance. So it was actually out of a sincere desire to help suffering Haitians that the U.S. forced them at gunpoint to allow U.S. investors to take over their country in an unselfish intervention carried out in a fatherly way with no thought of preferential advantages, commercial or otherwise, for ourselves. And as you can guess, I'm quoting the New York Times editors, uh, <laughs> adopting a posture that uh, is still found in some academic scholarship on Haiti. Well, in both parts of Hispaniola, Wilson's intervention left a bitter legacy, incomparably worse in Haiti. And before our eyes right now, in vivid and horrifying detail, uh, it can hardly escape notice that the devastating catastrophe in Haiti in January, uh, like many others, is sharply class-based. The small, Europeanized, wealthy elite, some just European, uh, they didn't emerge unscathed, but the really horrendous tragedy was in the miserable urban slums to which people had fled from the ruined countryside. Uh, that contrast, which was sharp enough, uh, was heightened by the impact of the earthquake a few weeks later in Chile. It was 500 times the magnitude of the Haitian earthquake, but with a fraction of the toll of the Haitian catastrophe, in part because of Chile's solid building standards and the radical difference in wealth quite generally. Now, there's no great secret as to how Haiti became a, a global symbol of misery and despair. It was France's richest colony and the source of much of France's wealth. And by 1789, uh, it was producing 75% of the world's sugar, and it was the world leader in production of cotton, which is kind of the oil of the early Industrial Revolution, and uh, uh, many other valuable commodities. Well, apart from its human consequences, the slave-based plantation society that was imposed by French imperial viol violence undermined the fragile ecology. Uh, Haiti did liberate itself at a terrible cost in 1804. It established uh, the first free society of free men in the hemisphere, and it struck fear into the hearts of the civilized world particularly the slave state nearby, uh, which refused even to recognize Haiti until 1862, when the US also recognized Liberia, and for the same reason. Uh, the Emancipation Declaration uh, raised concerns about how to rid ourselves of inferior, uh, inferior people, and the reigning doctrine was transfer them to where they belong. Uh, that project was actually abandoned a few years later when new and even harsher modes of slavery were introduced. It's a central factor in the U.S. Industrial Revolution and a chapter of American history that's too little known. Well, after by then, the U.S. took over uh, from France and the travails of Haiti continued. Uh, Wilson's invasion was the most destructive blow in particular, Wilson's restoration of a semi-plantation economy imperiled, uh, uh, impelled further the uh, flight of 
poor peasants to urban slums. Uh, that process was accelerated sharply under Reagan in cooperation with the World Bank, uh, again following the most progressive policies of the dictates of the most advanced economic theory. Uh, the idea was that they were going to help Haiti pursue its comparative advantage of work in US-owned assembly plants under miserable conditions, uh, mostly women uh, stitching baseballs and sewing clothes. And they should abandon uh, agricultural production to US agribusiness, all very rational. Uh, in a further uh, act of benevolence, uh, the US in the 80s compelled Haiti Haitians to destroy their domestic pigs, hardy pigs, a solid base for the peasant economy. And they were to replace them with pigs from Iowa that required lavish care that far exceeded the resources of uh, their new Haitian owners, another blow to the economy. Uh, the proclaimed goal was to turn Haiti into the Taiwan of the Caribbean. Now, in the same years, uh, deprived of the tutelage of uh, US and World Bank experts, uh, Taiwan followed the opposite course. It located labor-intensive uh, industry in the rural areas to stimulate growth and demand and to prevent migration to urban areas. And it succeeded brilliantly. Uh, Taiwan became Taiwan. Uh, Haiti sank deeper into misery. The final blow was administered by Clinton. Uh, after several years of supporting brutal military terror, uh, Clinton permitted the elected president uh, to return, but on a condition, namely that he accept the policies of the US candidate in the 1990 election, who had been roundly defeated uh, by, as a result of remarkable grassroots organizing uh, in the hills and the slums, again, uh, striking terror into the heart of the emperor. Uh, Clinton's condition for restoration of the rule of the vast majority was that Haiti must not impose any import duties, uh, once again, in compliance with the most advanced economic theory. Uh, the consequences were predicted right away by US government analysts, uh, really studies showing that what remained of Haitian agriculture would be destroyed. Uh, Haitian rice farmers are efficient, but they can't possibly compete with the US agribusiness, uh, which gains much of its profits from the lavish government subsidies designed by the free market enthusiasts of the Reagan administration. And uh, as predicted, uh, Haiti lost the capacity to feed itself. More peasant families fled to the miserable urban slums where survival is barely possible under normal conditions. Uh, and there's no time to fill in the remaining gaps, but they're more or less the same. The result, the catastrophe we're now witnessing, but witnessing without historical memory, very crucial in an imperial state, without historical memory or without recognition of what uh, our role in the catastrophe would lead decent people to do, and surely without memory of the significant contribution of Wilsonian idealism. Well, uh, Wilson's famed for his dedication to self-government, but as he explained, it had limits. 
uh, he said it did not apply to people at a low level of civilization who must be given friendly protection, guidance, and assistance by the colonial powers that had tended to their needs in earlier days. You look at his famous 14 points. Uh, they held that in questions of sovereignty, quoting, the interests of the populations concerned must have equal weight with the equitable claims of the government whose title is to be determined, that is the colonial ruler. Uh, particularly needing our protection and guidance uh, were those uh, whose resources we wanted. By Wilson's day, it was becoming clear that oil would be the of prime significance for the military and the future economy generally. Accordingly, uh, Wilson expelled the British from Venezuela, which by 1928 uh, had become the world's leading oil exporter with US companies now in charge. Uh, to achieve that goal, Wilson, uh, uh, Washington actively supported the vicious and venal regime of Juan Vicente Gomez, uh, violating its open door policy in order to achieve US economic hegemony in Venezuela by pressuring its government to bar British concessions. I'm quoting the standard scholarly study by Stephen Rabe. Uh, at home, uh, Wilson's idealism took the form of a red scare that was the worst attack on elementary civil rights in American history. Now, it might be thought that the historical record would pose some problems for the imagery of uh, benevolent exceptionalism that's diligently constructed within the culture of imperialism. But as among the current emperor's predecessors, uh, this is hardly so. It's uh, just kind of interesting to see how Wilson scholarship deals with this dilemma. Uh, the field's too vast to even try to sample seriously, but you can get some of the flavor of it from the current issue of the leading British uh, international affairs journal called International Affairs. It uh, features several, just came out a couple weeks ago, features several scholarly articles on the Wilsonian heritage in American foreign policy. Now the method adopted in these studies, I'll quote, is a close examination of how, a close examination of how the various ideas bundled together within the concept of Wilsonianism emerged in Wilson's own statements. And there follows a sophisticated analysis of Wilson's statements as they varied in reaction to changing circumstances and of how the ideological version of Wilsonianism has been invoked to justify actions in later years. And there are a couple of illustrations. One of them is the work of political scientist Tony Smith on what he calls America's mission, uh, exalting Reagan as the most Wilsonian of all presidents since Wilson's time. Uh, another example is the resort to democracy promotion as the rationale for US Middle East policy under George W. Bush. The scholarly inquiry omits to observe that democracy promotion became the grand rationale only well after the failure to find uh, weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Uh, that provided the wrong answer 
uh, to what Bush and Blair and other worthies uh, had stressed was the single question that motivated the invasion. Wrong answer means something new. Uh, the transformation of rationale from self-defense to altruistic idealism uh, passed virtually without notice, except among Iraqis. Now, there were U.S. polls among Iraqis. They dismissed the new rationale as an absurdity, uh, perhaps since they had the misfortune of living the experience. Well, a notable feature of uh, these studies on Wilsonian idealism is that the facts of history are scrupulously ignored. It's a very wise decision in favor of detailed examination of rhetoric and statements. Now, if facts were permitted into the discourse, uh, we would quickly discover that there's considerable merit in Tony Smith's description of Reagan as the most Wilsonian of presidents since Wilson's time. Uh, but uh, that course leads to dangerous turf, uh, best avoided. Uh, Kinda and other victims, far too numerous to mention, uh, don't have the luxury of the intel intentional ignorance that's one of the prerogatives of power and privilege and one of the foundations of our intellectual culture. Uh, as you know, a major theme of Ed Said's impressive work was the responsibility of intellectuals. Intellectual is kind of an honorific term. It has nothing to do with the quality of what they say or anything like that. It's a term that we use for people who have a sufficient share of privilege so that they're able to speak publicly about human affairs. Uh, privilege, of course, confers responsibility. Uh, history, naturally, is written by intellectuals. So their own role uh, often appears attractive, even heroic, and for a marginal few that's correct. But the true record is pretty grim, back to the earliest days of recorded history. And if that tradition persists, and if we otherwise persist on our current course, uh, the today's critical issues will not have to be contemplated by the beetles and bacteria that may inherit the earth before too long. Thanks. agree with that. I think a lot of things have changed. I mean, what I've been talking about today, you couldn't have talked about not many years ago. 
uh, now you can talk about it everywhere. So it's true, for example, that, uh, I mean, say take last November. It was a really horrifying month. I mean, the fact that we would sell it was momentous events that happened in Eastern Europe, no denying it. But the fact that we could celebrate the triumph of, you know, love, nonviolence, and so on, when at the very same period we were carrying out monstrous terrorism and, in fact, destroying uh, Christianity, a battle against Christianity in large measure, passed without comment. Well, actually, you can talk about it now, not among intellectuals, like you won't find any writing about it, but um, at the beginning of the month, I happened to be in Ireland, and I, not that it was a deep insight, but I just predicted it. I said, this is what's going to happen in the coming month. November 30th, at the end of the month, I was one of the speakers at the Boston College uh, Memorial, which is the only one I know of, and there's a huge audience, and they could understand, and others can understand. Uh, well, that's changed. Uh, didn't happen before, and there are many other things like it. I mean, the country has become a lot more civilized than it was. Well, that's uh, substantially the result of the activism of the 1960s, and its aftermath, and it's the main reason why the 60s are so uh, despised. Um, if you read the intellectual culture, that's the time of troubles, you know, uh, kids going wild, uh, what are we gonna do, and so on. Well, yeah, they were going wild, they were civilizing the country. Uh, that's when, uh, and it was a real move forward in uh, democratization. Uh, a lot of things came out of it, you know civil rights, women's rights, uh, concern about the environment, opposition to, the, opposition to aggression, um, uh, right up to the present, I mean, say things like the International Solidarity Movement and uh, all kinds of things. Uh, they're part of the activism of the 60s and its aftermath. And that's, uh, there was an immediate response to that too. It's not discussed much. But across the board, uh, across the spectrum, there was real horror at the 60s. And it, a lot of it's in print. Uh, because they didn't know enough to sort of, they didn't figure anyone was going to read these things, so it was published. Uh, but, uh, for example, the one book you should certainly read, if you haven't done so yet, uh, came out in the early 70s by the Trilateral Commission. Well, that's liberal internationalists. That's Carter. That's where his administration came from, uh, Europe, Japan, and the United States. Uh, the book's called The Crisis of Democracy. Uh, as soon as it came out, I figured this book isn't going to be in print very long, so I got about 20 copies of it and put them in the MIT library, and in, indeed it went out of print pretty soon, but I think it came out later when people had forgotten. But with the book, the book was very frank. It said the 60s, this is the liberal side of the spectrum. Uh, it said the 60s were a dangerous period. Uh, it was a period in which people who are usually passive and apathetic and obedient became kind of engaged and started pressing their interests and concerns in the political arena. And this uh, led to an excess of democracy, which is unacceptable. And we have to have more moderation in democracy. And it proposed various methods to do that. Some of them involve the universities right now, in fact. Uh, one of the things they were concerned about was the institutions, I'm quoting now, the institutions responsible for the indoctrination of the young the schools, the universities, the churches, they weren't doing their job. I mean, these kids were, look, look what they're doing. So we have to be stricter in indoctrination of the young. 
And if you look at what happened after that, and we're now seeing it, a number of things were done. One of them was to try to ensure that students would come out of college with a heavy debt. Uh, that is a disciplinary effect. So, uh, you know, tuition started shooting up and all sorts of other things. And in fact, uh, you now have what the press is denouncing as riots uh, in, say, California and other places because uh, people can't afford to go to school. In fact, uh, California, you know, maybe the richest place in the world, is destroying it's uh, the best public edu higher pu edu public education system anywhere. Um, they've raised the tuition so high that you know it's practically like private universities. And it's very likely that uh, the jewels and the crown, Berkeley and uh, UCLA, will probably be privatized. They're virtually private now, and they'll become kind of Ivy League colleges. And the rest of the system will decline. You know, it's kind of low-level uh, state colleges. Well, you know. Students are protesting, so they're rioting. They're terrible, more of this terror. Uh, and many other methods have been used. And in interestingly, they haven't succeeded. The activism's continued, and it's grown. Uh, I mentioned the International Solidarity Movement, but remember that that's a movement from the 80s, and incidentally, mostly church-based. It came from, not from the elite universities. It came from the Midwest, uh, you know, Southwest, a lot of it from evangelical churches, and it spread. It's, there's now an international solidarity movement all over the world. Uh, uh, there was never anything like that before, and many other things. So I, I just don't agree with the premises. I think a lot's happened, and uh, not enough. You know, it's never enough. But uh, it means that uh, protest and activism today can start from a much higher plane. We've got a legacy that we can use. I mean, you know, propaganda will try to tell you nothing's happened. But anyone who was alive in the 50s, say, knows quite a lot has happened. I mean, take, say, Princeton. I mean, I was here 50 years ago. There were no women, you know, nor at MIT, for that matter. Okay. Technically. But MIT had, when I got there in the 50s, I mean, there's like, you know, maybe 10 women around. So, yeah, technically it was co-ed. But uh, now it's 50% women, a third minorities, uh, you know, informal relations, dress, a lot of activism. And that, that happened everywhere. Okay, these things civilized the country. Not enough, you know, but a lot. And they're bitterly opposed, naturally. Uh, elites don't like to lose power and authority. They don't like the decline in the uh, ability of the institutions responsible for the indoctrination of the young to do their work properly, uh, but that's uh, all to the good. So I, I think we don't have to, you know, what you can ask whether what's happening is fast enough to deal with the problems that are arising, and maybe not, you know. I mean, after all, there are real crises coming. Uh, and maybe the trajectory of change is too slow. Well, if that's true, it will be the Beatles and the bacteria who uh, talk about it in their way. But we don't have to assume that. And as to how to go ahead, we know exactly how to do it. There aren't a lot of ways, just the ways that have always been used.
So is, is what's happening putting them on the path to development? Well, you know, the, uh, what's called counterinsurgency, which is as old as the hills, I mean, it's talked about as some new story. Uh, you know, it's better than just massacring people. Uh, will it do anything? Well, just take a look at the small print, sometimes not so small, uh, in the current reports uh, about Marja. Okay, that was the first big uh, exper experiment in the grand new theories. Uh, Marines went in, you know, cleared the place out, uh, brought in a couple of uh, Afghan officials. The first one they brought in was the vice president it's a Pashtun area who's a Hazarite, I don't even speak the language, so we know what he's talking about. Uh, then they brought in uh, Karzai yesterday, it's in this morning's paper. And just take a look at the comments of the people. Uh, what they say is, uh, the way it's put is, they, you know, the past Afghan government was terrible. But notice that they refer to it as the government of the warlords. That's the US-backed government. That's the current parliament, the parliament of the warlords. That's what they're complaining about. And they say, we don't like the Taliban, but at least it was peaceful and you know, there was some kind of justice and so on. You guys just terrorized and tortured us. Like, why should we put any faith in you? And the reporters say, well, you know, it's uh, and the Marine commanders. Well, look, look how much progress there is. At least Karzai can come here and get yelled at. But uh, will it change anything? You know, I, I wouldn't lay bets on it. And besides, it's none of our business. This is what Afghans should decide. And uh, it's, it's not up, it, uh, Obama had this, uh, there's a lot of discussion about the long period of deliberation he went through to decide how to change policy and that shows how great he is and so on. Now, there were some voices missing in that, those deliberations, pretty notably. There wasn't a single Afghan. They just don't have a voice in deciding what our policy should be for their country. And Interestingly, I don't think anyone even noticed it. Why should they have a voice? You know, they're like those um, Haitian niggers. You know. We decide uh, what we're going to do for them. Well, uh, they have voices. Uh, in fact, they're pretty eloquent. Uh, maybe you've read, uh, I don't know if you've read Malalai Joyaf, just to take one example. This uh, Afghan woman who's a very courageous woman. She's lived through the Russian invasion, The U.S.-backed warlords uh, who were so horrible that the population welcomed the Taliban, they lived under the Taliban, lived under the return of the warlords, uh, survived somehow, doing really good things, you know, educational programs in the rural areas for women and so on and so forth. She was elected to parliament, uh, kicked out because she was criticizing the warlords. And she still, she writes, she speaks, she tours the United States. And I think she probably speaks for a lot of Afghans. Uh, she, she, you know, don't have any way of testing it, but she probably does. And she says, yeah, we need an invasion. We need an invasion of schools, uh, hospitals, uh, uh, roads, and not an invasion of tanks and guns. Well, there is an Afghan peace movement. Again, can't measure how significant it is, but they've had uh, you know, big conferences. They get backing in Germany, not here. And, uh, you know, they have similar proposals. Uh, there are also proposal ideas from uh, leading specialists, mainstream specialists, like Barnett Rubin and others who say we're going about everything totally the wrong way if you, uh, if you really want to 
achieve anything, you're going to have to leave it to the Afghans and bring in the countries that have a stake in what happens there, not run it yourself. Now, the countries that have a stake in what happens there are Iran, uh, India, Pakistan, China, Russia. They have to be brought in, and they don't like the idea of, of, of most of them of NATO bases there, major NATO bases there. So you know they have to be brought in if you're going to be an international uh, approach. So there are there are things you could do. You know, in fact, same is true. Of Pac you know, it's all tied in with Pakistan. Uh, Pakistan is a horror show. Again, another one of Reagan's achievements in large measure. Uh, Pakistan has pretty ugly history, but uh, uh, also good things. You know. Uh, strong democracy movements and so on. Uh, the wor uh, Pakistan has had a series of dictators. The worst of them was in the 1980s, Zia al-Haq. He was Reagan's special darling. Uh, uh, the Reagan administration was pouring in aid uh, to help him it, uh, carry out radical Islamization of the country with Saudi funding and that's where all the madrasas come from and so on. Uh, the Reagan administration was also pretending that they didn't know uh, that he was developing nuclear weapons because they wanted, if he'd done that, you have to, Congress would have put restrictions on it. So now, thankfully, we have another nuclear weapons state uh, with a radical Islamist uh, sector. Uh, this was being done theoretically to defend Afghanistan. But if you look back, uh, the, it, what was going on was pretty straight. The, the CIA station chief in Islamabad in the 1980s just explained what we're doing. He said, our goal here is to kill Russians. It's not going to help with the liberation of Afghanistan, and that's none of our business. And you could see that when the Russians withdrew and they left it to the warlords. But we're going to be able to kill Russians this way. So if Afghanistan goes down the tube and Pakistan goes down the tube, who cares? Well, OK, we're kind of left with that. You know, uh, The two states in the world that are the most extreme centers of radical Islamism and jihadism are Saudi Arabia and Pakistan, you know, our long-standing allies. I mean, that's not the way, and Britain as well has been cultivating radical Islamists for decades uh, to try to block secular nationalism, the standard imperial policy. Well, you know, with that kind of a basis, uh, I don't personally see a lot of reason to hope, but the more important point is it's not our decision it's the decision of the Afghans and the Pakistanis. And there are proposals from them as to what makes sense. Like in Pakistan, uh, you know, Pakistan has a pretty good constitution, 1973 constitution, which, uh, you know, they could implement. It gives autonomy. Uh, Pakistan is kind of patched together from lots of different groups. Uh, the, in Balochistan, the, they probably don't recognize Pakistan's existence. They probably regard it as Punjab or something. But uh, the, the, the 1973 constitution gives reasonable degrees of autonomy, autonomy to the various groupings. It could be a basis for patching the country together, let, letting this very strong democratic forces take over, but not if we, uh, if we keep supporting uh, the military and you know, the ISI, the intelligence groups. They're the worst. Thank you. As special envoy to Israel, and that was followed up 
by the Cairo speech. I'm wondering if you could comment. It would appear yeah. that the appointment of Mitchell for many of us looked like a, a hopeful thing, but it appears that it's all just become rhetoric and that, in fact, things have simply gone backwards. And can you tie that into the alliance that you saw that developed in 1967? Well, actually, the appointment of Mitchell was a very good appointment. Mitchell has a good record. Uh, he was George Bush's negotiator. That's not new. Uh, and it's a good appointment. He has quite a good record and uh, a record of success, in fact, which provides a model as to how to succeed. Uh, he was the negotiator, who the main negotiator, who helped bring about the uh, pe fairly peaceful resolution of uh, Northern Ireland's uh, time of troubles. And the, what, what happened was uh, Britain had been responding to IRA terror was pretty serious. Uh, and Britain responded to each act of terror by extending its own violence, uh, which is a gift to the IRA, you know, the extremists in the IRA, and it sort of cycled upwards. And finally, in the late 90s, here incidentally Clinton played a good role too, I, to be honest, I have to admit it. Uh, and Mitchell, uh, Mitchell was the sort of point man. Uh, the British reversed policy. They started to paying, pay some attention to the grievances that lay behind the violence and that enabled the militant elements in the IRA to mobilize support. And the grievances were, a lot of them were legitimate. They started paying attention to them. The violence declined. Uh, I was in Belfast a couple of months ago, in fact. I haven't been there for about 15 years. I mean, it's night and day. You know, it's not utopia. There's plenty of sectarian bitterness and anger, but it was a war zone the last time I was there. Now you, you can go anywhere. Peaceful. Okay, that's the way you should deal with the terror if you're serious about reducing it. Uh, well, okay, Obama appointed Mitchell. Uh, this is a couple of days after he took office, late January. And he gave a speech. And it's worth reading the speech. Worth reading it carefully. Actually, it's Obama's only real speech on uh, Israel-Palestine. Uh, he appointed Mitchell, announced Mitchell's appointment. He's also always very forthcoming, you know, loves everybody. He told the Arab states uh, that they're really doing a wonderful job. He said that there's a constructive proposal on the table, uh, the peace proposal of the Arab states. And he said we ought to build on that uh, and, uh, in his amiable fashion. And then he uh, uh, gave his um, suggestions. He directed them to the Arab states. He said, well, you should live up to your proposal and proceed to normalize relations with Israel. Well, you know, he's an intelligent person. He's literate. Uh, I presume he chooses his words carefully. He knows perfectly well that that was not the proposal of the Arab states. The proposal of the Arab states, the primary part of it was to reiterate, and it goes back to the mid-'70s, uh, to reiterate their support for the overwhelming international consensus on a two-state settlement. The, only the U.S. blocks that. Uh, everyone supports it. The Arab states, Iran, you know, Europe, everybody can mention. So they reiterated that. And then they went on to say, well, in the context of a two-state settlement, we should proceed to normalize relations with Israel. Okay, Obama carefully cut out the heart of the proposal and kept to the footnote corollary and said, yeah, why don't you normalize relations with Israel? What does that mean? 
He was saying loud and clear, we're going to continue our rejectionist stance. Okay, right away, a couple of days after the inauguration. It couldn't be clearer. I mean, everybody wants to believe there's something beautiful happening, but I mean, the words are there, and the actions support the words. The actions are what I described briefly. I mean, he, he, he instructed Israel that they should stop settlement expansion. There's nothing new about that. Bush said the same words, you know. In fact, it's in the, he was just quoting, Obama was quoting from the famous roadmap, you know, which is supposed to lay out the path to peace. And it says in it, uh, 2003, uh, Israel, first step, should stop any expansion of settlements, including natural growth. Okay, so Obama repeated it, very nice. Uh, he didn't bother saying, and nobody commented, bother saying that Israel had reacted to the roadmap instantly by formally accepting it, but adding 14 reservations, which completely uh, eviscerated it. And the U.S. supported that. It's kind of interesting that that reached the general public for the first time in Jimmy Carter's book, *Peace or Not Apartheid*. Uh, and that book, you know, people went through it with a fine-tooth comb to try to denounce uh, Carter for this or that misplaced comma or something. I didn't see anybody mention that the one new thing in, that he brought out in the book, new for the public. Uh, was uh, he included the 14 reservations, which render the roadmap inoperable. Nobody mentioned that. So it's another thing that was never mentioned. In all this look for errors in Carter's book, there's one glaring error, which was never mentioned. And that had to do with one of the, the worst of the U.S.-Israeli invasions, 1982. In 1982, with complete U.S. backing, Israel invaded Lebanon. They killed about 15,000, 20,000 people, destroyed much of southern Lebanon and Beirut and so on, all with U.S. backing. Uh, there was a pretext. The pretext was they had to respond to the shelling of Galilee. You know, PLO was shelling Galilee. Well, there was one problem with the pretext. It was total fabrication. The border was totally quiet, uh, north to south. South to north, Israel was bombing Lebanon regularly killing plenty of people in an effort to try to elicit some kind of PLO response, which would be a pretext for the planned invasion. Uh, the most they could get was a couple of symbolic, you know, nothing, actually nothing, nobody even harm. Uh, finally, they didn't have a pretext, they just invaded outright. Uh, but that's the official line. It's what you get from Thomas Friedman, you know, propaganda and so on, and Carter repeated it. Uh, it was an op it was openly discussed in Israel at the highest level that this is a war for the West Bank. The threat was PLO negotiation offers, uh, which were threatening to permit a diplomatic settlement. They wanted to end that, so they wanted to drive the PLO out of Lebanon. Well, it wasn't secret, you know, it was all over the place. You knew it right away. Uh, but Carter repeated it, and nobody ever thought that was an error. Well, yeah, because that massive lie uh, happens to be a core part of our propaganda for justifying our aggression and atrocities. Uh, well, okay, that's a, that was Obama's speech uh, uh, on Mitchell. But what about Cairo? The Cairo speech was, you know, polite. I mean, he didn't insult the Arabs. He said, the Muslims, he said, we love you, you're our friends, and we can all be happy together. Was there any content there? 
that look back and see if you can find anything there other than we love you and let's all do things together. Uh, actually, on his there was something that he did say on his trip to Cairo. Uh, there was a press conference, and uh, uh, he was asked, uh, "What are you, are you going to say anything about Mubarak's authoritarian regime?" That's quite a compliment, incidentally. He's one of the most brutal dictators in the Arab world. But they said, are you going to say anything about his authoritarian regime? And Obama had an answer. He said, uh, he said I don't like to use labels for folks. Now, when a political figure uses the word folks, get ready. The next thing that's, uh, if they talk about people, OK. But when they talk about folks, some huge monstrous lie is going to come out. Uh, so he says, I don't, like to, I don't like to use labels for folks, so I'm not going to call him authoritarian. In fact, he's a force for stability and for good. Now, how can anybody in the Muslim or Arab world take him seriously when he claims to be concerned about human rights in Iran? You know, I mean, this guy's one of the worst dictators. Iran is practically a paradise in human rights terms as compared with Saudi Arabia, our main ally. But somehow people are supposed to believe, to accept this. And in the United States, you know, they do. But uh, try to find something else. It's hard. Uh, and it, there's no reason to expect anything different. I, I mentioned a little bit about Obama's record. I mean, even before he came into office, he was uh, lauding the fact that he had sponsored a Senate resolution, co-sponsored a Senate resolution to uh, ensure that Israel could continue its attack on Lebanon uh, and that ceasefires would be rejected. Now, he's proud of that. Well, what do you expect him to say? I, I don't see any, I mean, I, I don't think people have any right to be disillusioned about Obama, frankly. There was no basis for the illusions in the first place. <laughs> Um, I promised Noam's uh, assistant that I would protect his voice. I'm under strict orders. Um, but I want to thank all of you for coming, and please help me thank uh, Noam for being here.